34. What does the Tenth Commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any of God's commandments, should ever arise in our heart. Rather, we should always hate all sin with all our heart and delight in all righteousness. But what can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, With earnest purpose, they do begin to live, not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, that throughout our life, we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature, and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, that we may be zealous for good deeds and constantly pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, that he may more and more renew us after God's image, until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. The sermon I'm about to read is prepared by the Reverend Ken Cope out of Bluebell, Pennsylvania. After the sermon, we'll sing from Psalm 112, verses th- stanzas 3 and 4. We saw that the ninth commandment is expressed in courtroom language. You shall not bear false witness. This command deals, then, with rendering true judgment. It is the service of truth that the ninth commandment is concerned with. And we saw that the truth is God's way of doing things that he is utterly reliable, utterly trustworthy. When we speak of truth, then we are brought face to face with the God of the covenant. The world was created by his word, and as he created, he evaluated, he passed judgment. It is good, it is very good, he said. When God created man in his image and likeness, he placed him in the garden, where there were two special trees, one of which was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree has to do, the, do with rule and authority. Adam was to mature in judgment by acting as a guardian priest, and then he would be able to serve as a king. But Adam didn't mature in judgment. He didn't mature in truth, but he seized at it. He set himself against God's judgment. The truth is bound to judgment in creation and also in salvation. For not only did God create and evaluate, not only did he create man to share in his rule, but in salvation he saves by pronouncing judgment. He saves through judgment. Truth, then, is life in God's judgments, grounded in the testimony of the three persons as they bear witness to one another. Sin against the ninth commandment attacks God's faithfulness, attacks God's promise. Lying is refusing to accept God's rule. Truth involves not only strict accord to the fact, but truth involves mercy, God's faithfulness, 
God's care of his people must be maintained in our speech. Because God does what he says, we also are called to do the truth, not only simply speak the truth. For spiritually, truth is not only personal, but truth is a person. The Lord Jesus Christ is the way to the Father, the truth, and the life. He is the one in whom God's faithfulness and judgment are made known. The lie in all its forms, from gossip to perjury, to any of the other sins of the tongue by which we destroy and tear down one another, the lie seeks the power to rule and judge apart from God. Truth-telling is reflecting God's glory, God's faithfulness, God's mercy. So I proclaim to you the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is confessed by his church under this theme. In Lord's Day 44, we confess that we are to be conformed to God's law. First, the law reveals his character, and second, the law directs our faith. First then, in Lord's Day 44, we confess that we are to be conformed to God's law, which reveals his character. Beginning with the sixth commandment, the law has emphasized our kingly service to our neighbor. The sixth through ninth commandments are both simple and brief. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. As we saw as we went through them, each one of the commands prohibits not only certain acts, but the motivations behind those acts. This was as true in the Old Testament as it is in the New. The root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, desire for revenge, is condemned. So is lust. So is greed. So is deceit. All those commandments deal with the heart as well as with certain acts. And then you come to the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth and Last Commandment is distinguished by the rest in this part of the law by its length and by the fact that it literally forbids a desire. The translation, you shall not covet, leads us a bit astray. In English, coveting is easily confused with envy or greed. That's how we we use the word. If you covet something, you either greedily want it or you envy the fact that someone else has it. But the word that's translated covet in the 10th commandment simply means desire. You shall not desire. When you hear that, and when the Israelites heard that, they were brought back to Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The word desire here translated both as delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. The word desire, or covet, designates Eve's desire for the prohibited fruit. It is this desire that leads to original sin. The Tenth Commandment doesn't address the internal state that leads to theft. That's the way we quite often take it. It's not a condemnation of materialism that says you covet too much. The desire here that is forbidden is the desire to supplant, to eliminate, and to take the place of our neighbor. Ultimately, to desire or to covenant is to seek to supplant God. Apart from the gospel, life is the war of all against all. Look at what is enumerated in the 10th commandment. Wife, house, servants, 
livestock, whatever belongs to your neighbor. All these things are Yahweh's blessings to Israel. These are all things Yahweh said he would give. You would have a wife. You would be a fruitful vine. You would dwell in your houses, and so on. It is interesting that both here and in the Ninth Commandment, you have an exclusive mention of the neighbor. For Israel, the first reference to neighbor here is your fellow covenant member, fellow Israelite. The desire here isn't for stuff per se, but it is the desire for what is given to your neighbor by God. Desire isn't to have the same thing he does. Covenant isn't, boy, I wish I had a nice house like Ralph's. That may be envy, that may be greed, but that's not coveting. Desire is to eliminate the one who belongs to the covenant. The first commandment provides the foundation for Israel's relationship with Yahweh. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. By contrast, the tenth commandment describes the foundation for severance of the covenant relation. You see that if you look again in Genesis 3 verse 6, the woman saw that the fruit was good. That reminds you of Genesis 1. And God saw the light, and behold, it was good. He saw the dry ground, and so on. It reminds you of God rendering judgment. And the judgment of ease was true. The tree did produce good fruit. But as we said, the word delight and desirable come from the word covet. What did the woman covet? What did she desire? Well, she desired to be as God. The result of that desire to be as God and the disruption of creation would be that her desire would be to her husband. In other words, she wanted to supplant him. That would be the curse. The woman didn't want to live in God's blessing. Genesis 3 then presents the essence of covetousness. There are three basic gifts of God, three basic things that God gives. God gives life, God gives knowledge, and God gives glory. Those are three things everyone wants. We want life, we want glory, to have others listen to us and to receive praise, and we want wisdom and insight. These are what God gives. He gives and sustains life. He gives glory to his people. Think of 2 Peter 1. You are sharers in the divine nature. And thirdly, by his word, God makes wise and gives insight. Now look back at Genesis 3, verse 6. What does the woman see? The tree is good for food. It gives life. It is a delight to the eyes. It gives glory. It is to be desired for wisdom. But as we saw when we looked at the ninth commandment, by establishing that tree, God taught Adam that he matures his people gradually in wisdom for glory. That is the case throughout scripture. God matures us. He gives us wisdom and insight, and he gives us glory gradually. Passing by and not eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil would be to live in God's blessing, realizing that it is good to obey God. That produces patience and waiting for God to bless. But covetousness refuses this. Coveting refuses patient faith and refuses to wait for God to give. That's what Paul says in Romans 7 when he talks about coveting. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, not said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment 
produced in me coveting of every kind. What Paul is referring to here is not so much the tenth commandment as Genesis 2 and 3. In the garden, the woman and Adam desire the fruit they could not have. They covet God's rule and authority. And they coveted the position and glory that each other had. What Paul is saying is that no matter what sin you are guilty of, it boils down to taking God's prohibited fruit. By breaking that first commandment, Eve's desire to be as God and have rule and authority leads to coveting everything, not just that one fruit. You covet everything. You covet to murder. You covet idols. You covet to be mean. You covet to gossip. And on and on it goes. The serpent used the command meant to tempt Adam. Notice how the first thing the serpent did was to turn the woman and Adam against each other. He goes not to the one who had been made the covenant head, Adam, but he went to the woman. He said to the woman, Hey, why don't you eat of the fruit? Now, of course, Adam, who is with her, lets this go on, and the woman, when the serpent talks to her, does not turn to the one who has been created first and had heard the word of the Lord about the tree, asking him, Is this right? No, she passed judgment. The woman and Adam are turned against each other. God's structure is turned on its head. By going to the woman first and working this way, the serpent also turned them against God. He put the truth in a false context. He set the terms of discussion. So the commandment ceased to make Adam aware that selfish desire is coveting. Sin used the very commandment of God to create the desire that it warned against. This helps explain question and answer 113 in the Heidelberg Catechism. When you read the question and answer, it does not talk about what we normally call coveting at all. Instead, it treats the Tenth Commandment as a summary of the whole law. In fact, the language, particularly the language of the last sentence of that answer, should strike us as really familiar. With righteousness... With all our heart, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. Well, that's Lord's Day 33, isn't it? That's the Lord's Day about putting to death the old man and the coming to life of the new. Why is the dying of the old nature... Sorry, what is the dying of the old nature? That we more and more hate sin and flee from it. What is the coming alive of the new nature? That we delight to live according to God's will and all good works. You see, then, that the Tenth Commandment directs us to Christ, as the Catechism points out. It directs us to Christ because he is the last Adam, of course, and he is the one who shows patient faith. He did not seek to supplant God. Christ truly was of service to his neighbor, and he is the one who gives the gifts of God. We have seen before how those three gifts of God, life, glory, and wisdom, were symbolically sealed up in the most holy place, in the golden jar of manna, the books of Moses, and Aaron's rod. But Christ enters in, and he, by entering in, gives these gifts to us. This is also part of the point of Ephesians 4. Christ, in his ascension, gave gifts to his people. God saves us in Christ, and he glorifies us in Christ. God has fulfilled every promise in Jesus Christ, and he is the God who controls the future completely because he has done all that he has said he would do. Saving faith means trusting God, 
for what he has done in the past and what he will do in the future. As glorified people in Jesus Christ, who are robed in him, we must be even bolder in serving him. For in Christ, we have already died and been raised again. We have already been adopted as sons. We have already been married as a bride. And we have already been given the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We obey and serve him because our sins are forgiven, but also because we are being matured. We obey out of gratitude for our salvation and for the joy of being made like our Heavenly Father. Coveting attacks all of this. Coveting says, No, you live your life in your own strength. You seek blessing in your own strength. We need to remember that our relationship with God is established in Christ. He bore our sins. He received the punishment we deserve. He gave us his life so that the life that we live now is his. We come to the Father not as the doers of good works. Our relationship to God has nothing to do with our earning anything before him. But the world in which God has placed us does involve our works. Our works to serve our neighbor. God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. Apart from Christ, we only know God's wrath against sin. But, the, but with Christ as our mediator, we know God as our loving father, and we can love our neighbor. We serve God by serving other people. This is also what the Tenth Commandment directs us to. We serve our neighbor by not coveting, not seeking to supplant, not seeking to overturn. The law requires a life of total obedience, and thus we are always cast back on the grace of the lawgiver. And the law and the gospel don't represent two different ways to God or two different parts of God's message. Just think of the beginning of the law. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God has chosen us. He is our God, and we are his. He redeemed us from the realm of sin and death. Israel realized that Egypt was the realm of sin and death, and that it had spiritual, and that it had spiritual meaning. God redeemed us from the realm of sin and death, so we are supposed to put all our faith and trust in him. But the covetous person refuses to serve others. He does not believe in God's blessing, but seizes at what God what is God's gift. God's sorry, coveting is overturning the covenant and its blessings. That's why Paul so strongly says that no covetous person may enter the kingdom of God. That's pretty strong language. If you if you reduce the tenth commandment to you better be careful with window shopping. The Tenth Commandment is not about materialism. It's about unbelief, about refusing to be blessed by God. And so it cuts to the heart of covenant breaking. That is why it takes the language of Genesis 3, the same language that is used in Genesis 4 of Cain, since the desire is for you to master you, to rule you. Coveting is the heart of covenant breaking. Think about what kind of person sets his heart on what another has received as a blessing from God. Such a person thinks he is equal to God. Is not that what the woman and Adam desired? To be as God? By nature, that is what what we all desire. What kind of person feels he is justified in being angry and bitter? 
What kind of person seeks revenge? A person who thinks he is God and thinks he can bring vengeance. What kind of person thinks he is free to seek and initiate many marriage covenants? What kind of person thinks he is allowed to use people and their property at his disposal? What kind of person thinks his word legitimately creates and destroys? What kind of person thinks he has the right to judge others? The answer is the same every, in every case. The person who thinks he is God. Every sin you commit comes ultimately from this desire to be God. You may call it selfishness. You may call it self-centeredness. You, you may call it coveting. But it is an assault on God. That is what the Tenth Commandment says. Don't be like Adam. Don't try to supplant God. Because supplanting God means refusing to serve and recognize your neighbor. That is what happened in Genesis 3 with the forbidden fruit. That is also what happened in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. Again, let us look to Jesus Christ. We have that beautiful passage in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality with God. There is no... Not so much in terms, sorry, equality with God. There is not so much in terms of his deity, but it is as the last Adam, as the one who in the image and likeness of God, as the first Adam was. Though he was equal with God, he did not grasp at that. He does not covet God's position. He spent three years rejecting offers to rule and authority from Satan and Israel. He was the servant, the servant of all, and he poured himself out in the cursed death on the cross for us. The result is his glorification by the Father. He is raised above every other name and given the name Yahweh, or Lord. And we too share in this. Yes, we share in this. For we have been baptized and raised with Christ. And the gifts of God are given us in Christ. We don't have to exalt ourselves. We are to have this mind in us, which was in Christ Jesus, that's what the Tenth Commandment points us to. The answer to coveting is to be like Christ in humility. The answering to coveting is to hate sin, because God hates sin. That's why Christ died. Too easily we lose the biblical picture of sin, and there is a tendency to see God as the great therapist in the sky who will solve all our problems. The temptation is to pour so much culture water in the biblical wine that it has all the content and punch of Welch's grape juice. We need to see sin, see it for what it is. Consider the Apostles' Creed and the Catechism following it. We don't need a new doctrine of sin and a new emphasis on sin. What we need is to be conscious of sin in all its destructive filthiness. If we see that our sin is contrary to God's holy and merciful will, that our sin is prof profanation, repulsive, betrayal, like Judas's kiss, then we have to be led to confess our sin. We have to seek forgiveness. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the seeking of forgiveness tends not to happen in a redemptive sense for a lot of people who want really to confess their sins in all its ugliness. Sorry, who wants to really confess their sins in all its ugliness? It is so important to include in our liturgy a confession of sin and the assurance of pardon. The tendency for man is to become weak on God's holiness, sweet on God, and soft on sin. 
Greed for comfort, the power of success, the desire for self-praise has infected the church as well, and all of that is coveting. Maybe the best description of coveting is from James chapter 4. Coveting is friendship with the world. The answer to coveting can be seen in the life of the triune God. God is a being in communion, three persons, united, inseparably, inseparably from one another. The three persons love each other in humble self-giving. God shows his love as a triune God, as he calls us to himself. The Father sends his Son. The Father and the Son together send the Spirit, all for us, so that we would share in this divine nature of the humble, loving, self-giving. As you have heard, the commandments week after week, year after year, has it ever struck you that there is an interesting parallel between the Tenth Commandment and the Fourth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment, you shall not desire your neighbor's wife, his house, his manservant, his maidservant, his donkey, his cattle, all these things, aren't they mentioned in the Fourth Commandment as well? The Fourth Commandment states, so that your son, your daughter, your servant, and all the other things may rest as well as you. Look at who shares in Yahweh's rest, and look at what we are not to covet. Coveting is the flip side of being holy as Yahweh is holy. Coveting is refusing to be conformed to his image. It is refusing to rest in what he has done. We are to reflect God's holiness, his integrity, glory, and faithfulness. That is what the law calls us to. It is God's holiness, the awe of coveting, Yahweh, God, that reveals our sins to us. In that way, sin is far worse than we usually think. We are not wretched worms gone bad. No, we are kings and queens in rebellion. We are created in the image and likeness of God, and that means that as we turn aside from him, sin goes all the way down into us. We are corrupt at levels we don't understand. But God has not dealt with us according to our wickedness. His covenant love wipes away the muck sticking to us as far as east is from the west. You see, God's holiness takes us back, and it also takes, takes us aback, and it also takes us back. God's holiness brings confession of sin. The Tenth Commandment does not allow us to take an arm's length look at sin, but rather it calls us to, to the heart of the covenant. Let us look at the passage which we read in Deuteronomy, which in the end of the section of Moses' sermon that deals with coveting. In the first part of chapter 25, he gives instances of coveting, of seeking to distort and overturn the covenant blessings. And then he says there are two answers to coveting. The first answer is perpetual war against Amalek, fight God's enemies. The second answer to coveting is to tithe. It is to recognize that you live in God's blessing and to serve your neighbor. You can, as good middle-class North Americans, read the law and be set up for a kind of self-righteous mindset. We don't rape anybody in dark alleys. We don't murder anybody. We have never put a gun in the face of a gas station attendant and taken his money. But the Tenth Commandment tells us that to say, Lord, Lord, while hating your life and just being frustrated with things, to say, Lord, Lord, while engaging in cutthroat competition in business, to say, Lord, Lord, while desiring somebody else's wife, to say, Lord, Lord, and do a host of other things is coveting. In such a way, we say God does not bless, 
and I do not live in his rest. But we are called to have this mind in us that, we, that was in Christ Jesus. And so we come to our second point. In Lord's Day 44, we confess that we are to be conformed to God's law, which directs our faith. As we've gone through the Ten Commandments now over the past several weeks, we have found that the law is not a narrow set of legislations. The law is God's wisdom to be meditated on, to make us wise unto salvation, to mature us. We have already seen that the law teaches what the gospel teaches. Believe in the Lord God, trust in him. What the law does then is structured life within the covenant. The law was not given as a hard, frustrating thing that nobody could ever live up to. In certain circles, that is how the law is presented and preached. Here is that hard, exacting rule that nobody could ever possibly live up to. Just try it. You'll see what a miserable sinner you are. Well, consider Luke 1, where you have Zechariah and Elizabeth, who have kept all God's laws according to Luke. Either Luke hasn't heard of the doctrine of total depravity, or we have misunderstood the law. But I'm pretty sure Luke is the one who got it right. What Luke said is, The law says, Obey God, and when you sin, come back to him in the way he, was, he has prescribed, because he gives to him, sorry, because he gives us a way back. Just think of how the Heidelberg Catechism deals with the law. It does not deal with it under sin and misery. It deals with law in our thankfulness, our gratitude, to structure our life within the covenant. If you look through the New Testament, you don't have any, for lack of a better term, law preaching. You don't find Paul going to the Corinthians and saying, look, you have a lot of problems here. Your lives are empty and meaningless. You can't see that? He does not go around confronting unbelievers with their sins in that way, in a kind of Billy Graham style, making them feel bad and guilty. No, Paul confronts them with what God has done in Jesus Christ. He says, look at what God has done. Christ is the way back to God, set forth in the law. The gospel says who God is for us. And the law shows us how we may and must live in the covenant. But God's word is always first and foremost promise. The law or the covenant obligation is simply the way of life required by the promise. What the law shows is not that sin is the failure to live up to a certain standard. The law shows that sin is unbelief because the law shows the lawgiver the law and, call, and the call for repentance is not for the endless introspection so that you stare in your own spiritual navel to see just how bad you are. You'll find every sin. The law and repentance are joyful, returning to God in Christ, because in Christ we know who God is for us. Lord's Day 44 talks about the small beginning that even the holiest in this life have. Sometimes there is a tendency to emphasize the small in this way. Well, those who, of you out there who think you are holy, well, you only have a wee, wee beginning. But it is the beginning that is the emphasis. The emphasis is, is that we live out of what God has given. We sometimes have a tendency to take Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, and say that how you people are, even your best works are filthy rags, and don't you ever think otherwise. 
But Isaiah 64, verse 6, is a prayer of the people who have worshipped idols, who have profaned the altar, who have turned away from the Lord, and were now in exile. Is it, it is not the prayer of all Christians everywhere, so that we go around saying, yes, I'm a miserable worm. The point of the small beginning is that we may never get beyond the grace, get beyond grace and faith. We may never get beyond what God has given us in Christ. We still, still deal every day with the old nature. But this small beginning also tells us that sin is not our lot in life. The sinful heart has a vast capacity to, set its, to be self-serving and self-deceiving. But the sinful heart is redeemed in God's glory in Jesus Christ, so that we may hope in the Lord and serve him with boldness. Amen. Let's sing from Psalm 112, stanzas 3 and 4.